With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, you ever listen to stock radio? Ever listen to stock radio on weed? down here also kenny our buddy kd glad to have you here man hey what's good with it not much congrats i guess i gotta say because you now have your card in yeah. new jersey njmmp all uh, day uh-oh and you've been trying to get that for a little while because you've got some stomach issues yeah like a on. year but i didn't really have the money to like put for the license and stuff like i had all the paperwork and it's not so easy in jersey yeah it's not just going to get your but once yeah, i paid the money yeah, yeah, it's right. pretty costly, but once I paid it, it took like a month and I got it. Sweet. And I tried some some of their lavender. It was awesome. Awesome. It was so great. you're feeling a little bit better with yeah. the stomach issues? Yeah, I'm like, you know what I mean? I'm feeling more relaxed. You know, if I have a flare-up or something with IBS, I'll just, you know, roll up a joint and medicate. And at least you can get some food in you. Yeah. Well, no, nah, I'm still like losing weight. You I'm do like, look good. Yeah, I gotta be I'm honest with you, dude. It's not a bad plan. Yeah. Right for it's the summer. Like, I like, you know, like eating out late. I gotta cut that out. I'm trying to eat fruits now. It really is about when you think about it, a lot of times when you have stomach issues when you're younger, it's because you could eat a certain way your whole life without it ever having any impact. Then yeah, all of a sudden candy and all that. You then all, all of a sudden you're an adult and life catches up on you and it's like, dude, the body took care of you until you were eighteen. Now you gotta take care of it. Or it's going right. to start falling apart on you. Yeah, but it's cool, though. Now I can smoke legally anywhere I want. It's awesome. It's it's kind of like having a get-out-of-jail-free card. Like, you're always so concerned about just having something on you that could cause you to go in, to go to jail, where now if you get caught with it, as long as you have it right on you, you're okay. Even the cops can find it. Yeah. And go, yep, there's your card. Right. And it's just my medicine. Like you can't call it weed. It's my medicine. Right. I medicate when I feel like it. Good to hear, dude. Well, we've got a fourth guest tonight. We've got a fourth co host because we didn't know whether Kenny and Nick were gonna be able to make it on time. So I called in someone I've been keeping on the sidelines for a long time. I've told her before, it's possible I may at some time need you. (laughs) Tonight was the night. Without knowing Nick and KD could be here, Tracer tried to make it but couldn't so i said stace 
my wife, Stacy Butts, the person who you've heard me talk about on the show before. Stace, you've got to come on. You might have to be my co-host. Hey, everybody. How you doing? Privileged to be part of the studio tonight, sitting with these fellas. Dude, don't call us fellas. And <laughs> glad to have you here, Stace. So for people who've been listening to Potstock Radio for a while, they know you as the person who has been struggling with medical issues for years, too. Now, they don't know that during this process, you also got your medical marijuana card. True. They also don't know how much shit you've been through. You've probably been poked and prodded and tested more than any human I've ever known with back and neck issues. And you've done it with staying off of all narcotics for the most part, unless you're really messed up, staying off of all narcotics. That's because that's the main goal of mine. I don't want to end up like a lot of people that I see the problems that they have from narcotics. So I end up dealing with the pain more than... You know. But is it safe to say that cannabis has helped you more than anything else that you've been prescribed or reached out for to try and see if it could help you? True that. Right? So here we got three people, three people I really care about, my wife, my son, and KD, three people who all are positively affected by cannabis. Nick has stomach issues and anxiety issues that cannabis helps with. My wife has back and neck issues that she would – I know if she did what everyone else does instead of using cannabis, I would now be visiting her in recovery from being an addict. Go ahead, Steve. And I say over what Kenny says he likes to smoke. For me, with my muscle spasms, what helps most is cannabis-infused oils mm-hmm. and rubbing them on the areas that I have the, the issues. Yeah, yeah. topicals. Uh, Every day before I leave for work, I put lotion on Stace's back that's cannabis-infused. First thing I do when I come home is go, Stace, you need lotion on? Always yes. I just think that cannabis is just the answer for everyone, whether it's ingesting. Well, listen, I don't know if it's the answer for everyone, but it should be a question for everyone before prescription drugs are the answer. I don't think it cures anything. Thing, but I think that I don't say I don't think it cures anything. I'm not saying it cures anything. Sure. Right. We don't know it cures anything, but, but even just adding a little bit of cannabis in your dietary supplements, you know, like that's beneficial in itself. I agree. So I don't, I, that's why I say cannabis is right for everybody. You know, I don't think anything bad can come from cannabis. I, I've never found, I'm going to say it for the hundredth time, probably on Potstock Radio. It's only your relation, your relationship with cannabis that can be the problem. I don't know anyone who has the problem where the problem is the plant. The problem is usually the way they use the plant. But I think most people who have a need for a prescription could find some level of natural way to deal with that. And I think cannabis is the natural answer 75% of the time. So we're talking to three people tonight, by the way. Those of you who are listening to Potstock Radio, we've got three guests. We're starting with Bill Monroe. Bill Monroe is the manager of the Nevada operations for Green World. And we're going to have him on first and following up with Leslie Boxer of Boxer of Electrum Partners. And then last but not least, uh, we've got David Posner of Nutritional High. We're starting out with a guy who is in what I think right now seems like 
the Amsterdam in the United States of weed? I I know it's not there yet, but it is though almost. Yeah. Well, you were just there, but Vegas just seems like it's the place where cannabis was meant to be. On top of that, like it was already our country's main tourist attraction, you know? Yeah. Uh, so they just Dude, they did. people went there when it was just a desert and slot machine. Exactly. So for them to this summer just or this past season have had a football team and a hockey team right. and go right. Like, come on, that blows Colorado <laughs> out of the waters, California out of the waters. Gotta remember Oregon up top. That it doesn't really matter. It's not Vegas. Exactly. The only place where when you go there, what happens there stays there. Exactly. Now you Vegas. can just walk in a shop and the menus out there are unreal because, like I said, they can deal with all in-state vendors. Yep. All right, so let's go to Bill Monroe, manager of the Nevada operations for Maple Leaf Green World. What's up, Bill? How are you today, man? Hey, I'm just fantastic. How are you guys? Hanging in there. Appreciate you coming on Potstock right. Radio tonight. Although we got to admit, hey, we thought initially we were getting the CEO – and now we've got the manager of the Nevada operations. We are going to make the best of it for both of us because we're in the United States and believe that Vegas is going to become the mecca of weed. You know, Raymond puts a lot of these situations uh, to get on the air or to do some interviews uh, on his behalf, if you will. Um, I'm very involved with all of the projects, both in uh, BC, in uh, California, and in Nevada, actually. So uh, any questions you've got about those three, I'm happy to speak to. So don't change your script too much on my all right, Sweet. So let's just start there then. You guys are talked about as the one company that has the golden triangle of cannabis, and it's BC, California, and now Nevada. And why are you making that the footprint? Well, I think you kind of named it. You know, it's the it's like the golden triangle. Um, of course, dating back a few decades, BC Bud has been uh, huge and is world renowned. Um, I, I heard you guys arguing. My first good pot that I ever got, we just called it the BCs. So yes, yeah, totally yeah. I've got my uh, my older brothers can speak to the same thing. Um, a, a trip in the uh, the North Pacific did that for them as well. Their their first experience was with the BC, is what they called it. So I kind of grew up with that reference, which is nice. So now to be in business in British Columbia is pretty neat. Um, but then moving down to you know, I heard you guys arguing that Vegas is really the market. I I have to disagree just a little bit, as much as I would You're like to agree with County. you guys. Oh, I'm telling you, California just has such a lock in the United States with um, just the legacy and the tradition there, starting in Mendocino and Humboldt and Trinity counties and, and then branching south up, from there into the Bay and L.A. And I'm with you, Bill. They may end up with the history. Like, they might be the known quality, as – but yeah. when you think about where you go, like where Amsterdam used to be the place around the world to go for cannabis – when you think about where you're going to go in the United States, are you going to California or are you going to Vegas? Well, people have been going to California for this reason for about four decades now. So True. I think that may be Speaking the answer. Of but Vegas, is, Vegas is going to be a huge hit. I truly believe that, uh, that Vegas is going to be the second 
largest market in cannabis uh, in the U.S. There's some estimates from New Frontier and from uh, from a couple of the, um, the the speculative companies that are gathering data saying that California is going to be a, a six billion dollar market, whereas Nevada or Las Vegas is going to be about a $660 million market in the next wow. year and a half, two years. So California certainly holds the trump card for now as, as, as far as speculation is concerned. But California is kind of in the states we call it the, you know, it's the golden state. And Nevada is the silver state. So not too far behind is Nevada. So we're pretty happy to be in all three markets, B.C., in uh, California, and in uh, the Las Vegas market. So where are you at in all three markets? Where are you at in progress, starting with BC, then go to California, then go to Nevada? So BC, we're in stage five with our uh, AMCPR license. Um, so we are, um, at this point, only pretty stages, well guaranteed. Right? There's seven stages to the whole thing. So our next okay. stage, right now, we are in, right now we're in development. So we've um, secured our real wow. estate, and we've got a building plan, um, uh, finish construction, and then begin cultivating, get a cultivating license, and then Health Canada will come in and inspect all of our uh, cultivated product, test it for microbials, go through the process to make sure that we're safe to produce the medicine, and then we will get issued our sale permit. Um, so that's stage six and stage seven of the license process. And I know it's not a, a guaranteed time frame, but when do you hope to have Health Canada inspecting? What is your at least time frame that you're hopeful to? We hope to be having that um, around October, um, so we have enough time to make some changes um, in October and November, and then get issued our seller's permit uh, by this, by the uh, end of December. So we'll be operational this year. Wow. Impressive. Okay. And now move down to California. So California, we've got 20 acres um, in California in Riverside County. And we have... How excited. By the way, I got to stop you. Because as a guy Mm -hmm. who likes to grow pot, you just got super excited about your 20 acres. So go ahead. Well, well, it is pretty exciting. <laughs> and uh, have you done any uh, any outdoor grows, or you uh, have been mainly indoor or greenhouse? What's your experience been? Plead the fifth. Yeah, we have to plead the fifth. We're in New Jersey, a state where it's still just medically oh. legal. So uh, Very let's good. just, now, I, let's I'm just say I've we seen both. Yeah, yeah, I've yeah. seen vice. <laughs> So off the no, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah. So in California, we've got 20 acres in Riverside County, and we've got two greenhouses on the property right now. Um, one is for uh, propagation and for uh, for veg cycles, and then we've got one flowering greenhouse. We're in construction of a third greenhouse right now, and we've got plans to build an additional seven by the end of the year. So we'll have ten going into the winter season um, at the end of the year this year. Okay. And so we're building so, that facility out to be so that's all greenhouse operations. Um, so it's kind there's of true, already two greenhouses uh, there. Say again. There's a, you said you're building a third greenhouse, so there's already two greenhouses there. Correct. Yep, we've got two so, that have been in operation for just about a year now. Um, so when you and in an operation, the, 
they're actually already growing. They're already producing flowers. Oh, yeah, they're growing. We've had, we've had several harvests out of that. We run full light depth schedules. We heat them in the wintertime um, and then run them all through the summer, of course. Um, we intend to have 10 by the end of the year, 10 operational greenhouses. We're only waiting on – California is interesting. You guys being in New Jersey, you follow the, uh, follow the state's laws pretty closely, I'm sure. Um, sure. In California is interesting. There are, there are 53 counties in California, and each of them are, are establishing their own set of rules and regulations right now. So we're waiting on our local municipality to issue um, the, their set of regulations so we know exactly how large we can go. So we are growing. We are building it out, but we're doing so cautiously just in case the regulations come back um, uh, lackluster for us. So, Bill, you mentioned you had 20 acres, but two greenhouses. How much of uh, dry weight are you harvesting per harvest? Uh, we pull, per greenhouse, we pull about 200 pounds, um, and that's uh, several times a year uh, as we harvest throughout the year. Okay. We're talking to guys at dispensary, so they're doing math as to what you guys are doing, knowing that you have two greenhouses and comparing that to what they're doing in Jersey. Because although it is only medically legal here, we uh, do have someone here who works at one of the dispensaries who understands what it takes to make things happen in Jersey from seed to sale. So interesting. So California, so of the 53 counties, how many of them – are medical or cannabis for recreational or medical purposes being harvested out of? It's really only like four counties that it's grown in, correct? No, it's uh, it's really grown pretty widely across California. I can't answer if every I can't give you an exact number. I apologize. I could I could do some research and get you that answer, but for sake of the radio show, I can't answer that right now with confidence. But um, no, there are there are dozens of counties that are uh, currently cultivating. It's been a medical state since 1990, so it's or 96, excuse me, 1996. So the um, uh, there's numerous counties that are that have some form of medical legislation in California, um, and now with uh, the vote in November of last year, recreational passed, of course. So they're putting in the uh, the MRSA regulations um, uh, currently, that's all being written, and each of the municipalities are crafting their local legislation. So there's the federal legislation, which, of course, is illegal in America right now, and there's the state legislation, um, but still the municipalities all have a say as well. Um, so there's and really two levels to the I asked you a question. I knew you couldn't answer, and you answered honestly with, Eric, I can't give you that answer on the radio. I can only speculate to the best of my ability. So appreciated. I'm not here here to lie to you, but I will follow up with an email and get you that answer. Awesome. All right, so now let's move on to Nevada, which is – am I correct that that is – I know you said you're involved in all three areas in Canada and California and Nevada – but Nevada is your baby. Is that correct? Well, I haven't had any kids yet, but if I had to put a label on one, Henderson would be it. All right. So talk to us. You've got 33,500 square feet in Henderson. So first question is, yes, explain to us. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just agreeing with you. That is correct. 33,500 square feet. 
All right, so how did it work where there was an initial location and now it got moved to a new licensed location or attempting to move to a new licensed location? What happened there? So our um, when we originally applied, my business partners acquired who are residents of Nevada and have been long time, acquired uh, six medical marijuana establishment permits in the state of Nevada, two of them being in Henderson. And uh, the cultivation in Henderson is what uh, Maple Leaf Green World was interested in. But the piece of property that we originally applied for the permit on, and this is all the way back in 2014, June of 2014, when we applied for that permit on a piece of land, um, and we had not built out, had not done construction yet. Uh, We were focused on the north in Carson City and Washoe County, establishing those MMEs, medical marijuana establishments, and Mm -hmm. had not built out Henderson. So when Raymond um, and Maple Leaf Green World wanted to purchase our cultivation permit in Henderson, that land was no longer available or uh, suitable for the permit to be built on. So we purchased, we scouted several buildings over the course of about six weeks and several pieces of land, and we ended up with a 3.98-acre parcel uh, of bare land in Henderson. And the process, Eric, is to transfer the permit um, with the state of Nevada, the Department of Public and Behavioral Health, DPBH. We apply to them to transfer the permit from one address, the existing address, to the new location. And there's zoning requirements. You have to be a certain distance from schools and churches and parks and and public areas where children may gather. So we've done all of that zoning separation uh, analyses and determined that this is the right spot. And uh, we've got a building plan uh, in action right now. And we'll be uh, breaking ground um, very shortly and and constructing constructing the facility there. And you said we applied for the license. So are you a part of BioNeva Innovations? Is that where the we comes from? From Yep, I'm a partner in BioNeva, and we sold – we've sold a few of our permits, uh, including this one to uh, Maple Leaf Green World. And um, with this uh, structure, with Maple Leaf, we have retained a – Um, a management agreement with Maple Leaf to be the operations team on the ground running the facility and producing the cannabis. So what happens from here? How does this process work for the approval of the transfer of license? And what happens if the city of Henderson says, no, they won't transfer? So there's uh, the process is pretty simple. Um, We we're filling out right now what's called a special use permit, which allows us to build on the property, um, gives us the building permit to build on the property. Um, the city will approve our building plans, and we, we know the code inside and out because we've done this before in the state of Nevada um, with our other MMEs that we own. So it's simply walking through the process. It's pretty simple. We just transferred one of our other permits um, in the state to another group building the cultivation uh, last month. So we're intimately familiar with the process, very confident. The city of Henderson is very willing and receptive to the, to the medical marijuana program. Uh, and with recreation coming and the additional tax revenue that will be generated, 
um, we, I don't anticipate having any issues um, with the transfer process. So we fill out the SUP, the special use permit. We apply um, for a transfer of interest where we actually transfer the ownership and the state of Nevada and the city of Henderson approves that. And then we transfer the uh, address of the, the permit at the same time. So it's those three approvals, the SUP, the transfer of ownership, and the transfer of address. Those all happen simultaneously at one city council meeting in Henderson. And uh, we're off to the races and, and employ our, uh, our GC and the building crew from there. All right. So we've got the timeline of Canada within the year, California already producing uh, plants and just increasing from there. What is the hopeful time frame of Nevada and when that location will actually be producing? We'll be operational in Nevada uh, by the end of the year as well, um, about the same time frame as, um, as BC. We have some really good, my business partners have been in Nevada, been residents of Nevada for one of them for his entire life and the other one for over 20 years. Um, we've got very good relationships in the uh, construction and development uh, industry, as that's the industry they're in. So the building timeline should be smooth and uh, without too many hiccups. Um, we have good relationships with the city of Henderson uh, and with the state, so we don't anticipate any problems there. And we're building a pretty simple building. We're not getting too complex or too crazy here. This will be phase one. It will be less than the 33,500 square feet. Uh, and then we'll build out phase two after we're operational and as the market starts to mature. All right. So now being involved in all three areas of the golden triangle, we're calling it, give us an idea of what's I different. Like that. I like it too. Give us an idea of what's like really unique or different between Canada, California, Nevada, at least your experience so far in Nevada. Sure. So um, Nevada is pretty, it's an interesting market because there's only 28,000, give or take uh, several hundred, 28,000 medical uh, patients right now in the state. So it hasn't jumped on board very quickly like Michigan, for example, my home state, there's over 400,000 um, uh, card-holding patients there. So um, for a state of like Nevada to only have 26 or excuse me, 28,000 is pretty light. So the, the business there. has been slow. Right. Isn't that because nobody lives there and it's just Vegas well, uh, and tourists? Yeah, there's only about 2.9 million resident popu um, population in Nevada but Vegas sees about 42 to 43 million visitors every year. So, uh, and, and Nevada does have reciprocity with all the other medical states. So if you have a, like my Michigan medical marijuana card, for example, works at dispensaries in Nevada. So yeah, if you awesome. have a medical card from any other state, it works in Nevada at all the dispensaries, um, but still it hasn't really driven the numbers like we've seen in a number of other medical states. So, no, because yeah, people aren't going from a state where it's legal to go to Vegas. They're going, you know, I, I want to go because I'm in a state where it's not legal and I can go to Vegas. So I get why just being able to take other states' cards didn't really do anything for sure. Vegas. I mean, it makes it nice because those medical patients sure. can have access to their medicine while they're vacationing, but you're right. It didn't bring any like Here's what I can tell you, Bill. To the industry. 
I know two people who recently went from New Jersey to Vegas. One of them had their card. One of them didn't. The one who had their card was like, yeah, it was cool. I could just go anywhere right away. The one who didn't have his card was like, within two hours, I had my card. It was no big deal. Yep. That's, you're right. It's very, very easy. The state actually um, – and do you know if that second person got their card? Was it a California card or was it a Nevada card that they got? It was a Nevada card that they got. I believe. So the state of the, – I, I would have to – I would guess, check up on that. And when we email each other about the number of counties in California. go to California first, put it that way. Say one more time. They, I know he didn't go to California first. I know he went right from Jersey to Nevada and got his card there. So what's interesting is there are actually doctors in California that are doing Skype visits and teleconferences oh, where they're actually seeing you. I, I kid you not, $39, you get online at a couple specific websites, you have a five, maybe six-minute Skype call with a doctor, and about two minutes later, you have an emailed certificate in your inbox. Wow. Very yeah, That's new age healthcare. I mean, all hospitals are doing that. Yeah, but it's crazy that someone went from New Jersey oh, yeah. to Nevada wow. and got a prescription yep. from a doctor in California. That's friggin' crazy. nuts. Isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> that is. So I don't, I'm not aware of any services in Nevada that are that quick and to register in the state of Nevada. Um, they, the state has actually, the DPBH has done a wonderful job at speeding up the process. It used to be very tedious and take quite a bit of time, but the state has done a great job at speeding that up now. It's, it's like one form, one document you got to mail in and you get issued your card. So um, pretty simple now. Um, but with recreation coming, um, um, the governor has actually uh, initiated a marijuana task force that is, that is beginning an early start program. So recreation uh, got voted into effect this past year and actually took effect January 1 of 17, but there was no tax reform or tax code built um, or a tax button on the cash registers uh, at the dispensaries for recreational. It was only still medical. So like most states, it takes a little while. California is in the same race right now. All of the municipalities are trying to figure out how they're taxing it, what they're doing with the tax dollars. Of course, they're looking at Colorado, Alaska, Oregon, Washington to see what they've done and are modeling their tax reforms after that. So um, the so July 1, so with this marijuana task force, uh, there have been uh, open workshops and public meetings where the community has been able to contribute and some experts in the industry who have been nominated to this, this task force have been um, working on tax reform, and it looks like July 1 of this year, we will have a, uh, a recreational tax code, and there's an early start program that the MMEs are able to, to jump into before the official launch of January 1, 2018. So I think the climate is gonna change very quickly, and we're gonna see a huge spike in cannabis sales in Nevada uh, because of recreational. Bill Monroe, I got to be honest with you. I was a little nervous in the beginning. We got the manager of Nevada operations instead of Rain and Lie, CEO of Maple Leaf Green. I got to be honest. I want Bill Monroe back. You gave us some incredible <laughs> insight on – we thought you were just going to give us a little info on Nevada. You're going all over North America to give us insight. 
So, so we're talking to the manager of Nevada operations for Maple Leaf Green World. Check them out on TSX, their MGW on the OCTQB. They are MGWFF. Bill, we got to have you back on. We got to get to Leslie Boxor, who we're going to ask for a little bit of insight on what he thinks about Maple Leaf Green World. But we definitely like to have you back, man. You are awesome. That's excellent. Thanks, Eric. I appreciate being on the show, and uh, you're welcome to call me anytime. All right, sweet. Check them out. Maple Leaf Green World. They are MGW on TSX, and then in the States. They are MGWFF on the OTCQB. We are moving on from Bill Monroe to Leslie. I want to pronounce it right at least when I start. Botchsor. Leslie, how are you tonight, man? Happy to have you back on Potstock Radio. Fantastic. It's good to be here. Man, Leslie, you are the guy. I met you. I don't know if you remember. I met you out at the first weed stock in Denver in 2014. <laughs> And right away, I was sitting there in an area where I was just watching people walk in, and you saw boring person after boring person walk in, or person who had uh, – you knew they were there for a specific reason. And then this guy came in who had giant bushy eyebrows and a crazy beard and mustache, and he was just the most positive, excited guy in the room. And right away, I was like, that dude's going somewhere. So now happy to have you <laughs> on Potstock Radio for the second time a couple of years later. So here's what I want to start talking to you about. I love that you got here by a totally different reason than most people did. A lot of people in this industry are pot people who just went, okay, now we can make money. You're a guy who loved disruptive industries and went, wait, the internet just came out of nowhere and just – just made this market that couldn't be avoided. And now you look for the next one and it led you to cannabis. Give us a little bit of an idea of how that journey happened. You know, it's interesting. I've always been cannabis friendly. Um, it, you know, I was doing research back when I was 15. I just didn't know it. Though. Right. right. Uh, you weren't and, uh, You're an intern. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, I had, you know, I read all the, I read some of the books and met some of the activists, uh, read part of Jack Herrera's book. And, and uh, I'd always known that the prohibition was based upon uh, bunk. It was, you know, the, the disinformation and lies and yeah. propaganda. I just never expected to see anything in my lifetime. I just thought it was too firmly entrenched in our culture. And mm -hmm. when I moved out to uh, Las Vegas in 2010, I came here because I was doing research on the casino industry, expecting a very large disruption in the casino industry when land-based casinos would find themselves facing online casinos and what that would represent for that industry. And I imagined it was going to be a very big change. And so I came out here to do some research. When I got out here, it didn't take me long to find out that there was a medical marijuana law on the books in Nevada. Um, and so I started to do, do some research you know, is it possible to set up, what, what does that mean? Is it possible to set up businesses? You know, how come there aren't any dispensaries? I know there's dispensaries in California. I know that there are collectives in Oregon. I'd heard about things happening in Colorado. And as I did research in 2010 and 2011, I saw the Nevada law at that time was really only half a law. It allowed for uh, cultivation and use. It didn't allow for any transfer or sale which was very unfortunate for the patients. Can you imagine being the poor 
poor person who gets a, a diagnosis of something where they need growing. to use cannabis immediately. Yeah, and, and oh, you can use it. It's legal, yeah, yeah, to, but yeah, you to have to learn it. how to grow it first. Yeah. <laughs> sure, get a couple seeds from who knows where and eventually figure out which ones are the male or the females and not the male. And in two years of a lot of figuring things out, you'll eventually have medicine. Great. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't fair. And so uh, my research got me to see that. And I um, then uh, started, you know, in the process, I was looking at what was going on in other jurisdictions. And, and I saw, and to sort of make a, a long story a lot shorter, I, I was, my timing was right in terms of doing the research because I was in the middle of doing the research just at the time that Colorado and Washington passed adult use in 2012. And when that happened, I'd had a good friend by the name of Joe Bresney, who if you haven't had him on the show yet, you should absolutely have him on the show. Without him, we would not have legal cannabis in Nevada. And candidly, he's affected the entire country. He's a, a brilliant political operative heard you and government relations expert. So I love that. Yeah, he's amazing. And he said to me, uh, oh, this is going to go nationwide. I said, oh, you know, before the election, I said, oh, I you're just a hopeful stoner. It's not going to happen in our lifetime. And then sure after, sure enough, after the election, I went back to him. I said, okay, Joe, I'm ready to eat crow. You were right. I was wrong. Show me the data. Why did you know this was about to happen? And he showed it to me, and I shut down all of my other business interests to focus on this exclusively right after the election of 2012. In 2013, as you know, um, one of my neighbors, Tick Sigerbloom, the state senator, is the, the author of SB 347 that became the medical marijuana law that passed in 2013. I was with Joe Bresney, a part of a small group of people, maybe 20 or 30 of us, who were working on this on a daily basis nearly while um, our legislature was in session. And it passed. And as a result, I got asked to become the founding chairman of, at the time, the Nevada Cannabis Industry Association. And uh, we just started working with uh, the policymakers to implement a good regulatory framework. And that really was the path. It was accidental. It wasn't by design. I normally look for disruptive industries. This one found me. And so but this was different than my previous endeavors. Even at the time, Leslie, weren't you looking for just medical marijuana to be the platform in Vegas, or were you at the time already looking at recreational or adult use of cannabis? So it's funny. Okay, it's, it's interesting that you asked that because there's a, there's a really relevant comment on that as regards Nevada. Nevada is different from many other jurisdictions in that our legislature only meets once every two years for 120 days. I think it was Mark Twain that, that's credited with saying that it would, the state would be better off if it met um, for two days, once every 120 years. Uh, but it, it, in, in those long sessions between the, the legis in those long periods between the legislative sessions, if we wanted to get m cannabis for adult use on the ballot in 2016, we needed to start right after the legislature passed medical in 2013, because if we did not, we were not going to be able to have another general election presidential until 2020. Yeah. And the way the Nevada, the, there, there wasn't a, a path for it to pass legislatively and on, and as you know, you know, cannabis generally is best on presidential years, not on midterms. And so sure. we wanted to make sure that we were doing that then. And so the truth is we started to work on the ballot initiative even before the medical 
program had been rolled out. Were you surprised that it passed for adult use in 2016, or was that in Vegas something that you were not too shocked by? So I'm not going to say I was surprised. I'm going to yeah. say that it was it was it was a battle, and you know up until the day of the election, uh, we were concerned that there you know Sheldon Adelson was was funding it on the other side, and he'd spent three and a half million dollars, and he has a fair amount of influence you know plus he also owns now the biggest newspaper in Nevada, the Las Vegas Review Journal, so. Between the you know 180 million he spent buying that, and the three and a half million he spent against it, we we had a really, it was a real fight, and so I'm not surprised. I am I you know I was cautiously optimistic, and I am pleased to see that Joe Bresny and Scott Rutledge and Sean Sinclair, who were the three people that worked on the campaign. And really drove the you know drove it to the net and put the ball through the hoop, that you know they they deserve a lot of credit because uh, it was their work that made it so it wasn't a surprise and and they even show their expertise by the fact that they won by nearly ten points. And then although it wasn't a surprise, correct me if I'm wrong, isn't most of the state still against legal cannabis? It's just that Vegas holds so much weight in the state that it still passed. Well, Vegas and Reno were for yeah. it. And it's, it's interesting when you say most of the state, most of Nevada is empty. I mean, it's, yeah, you know, yeah. there's, 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 the there's one county in Nevada that has, that has 2,700 square miles, is two-thirds two the size of the state of Rhode Island, and yet it only has 800 registered voters. Wow. So when you say most of the state, well, most of the state's empty and there's nobody there. So, yeah, most of the, so these, there are these counties that have, you know, populations of, you know, 5,000, and they voted against it because they're very rural. Of but course. if you look at the two metropolitan areas, Reno and Las Vegas, they voted for it. So it was really the population of the state obviously was for it, but many of the local jurisdictions in the rural areas are against it. Speaking of surprise, what are your thoughts on the surprise of Trump getting in office and his election of Sessions? Yeah, you a Trump Sessions fan? So, um, you know, not to talk I, I'm a one issue. I'm a I'm a one issue voter. So anybody who is moving this this ahead within reason, I'm a fan of. Um, and that being said. I think that Senator Sessions is wildly misguided and out of touch with the data that shows what's really going on. Cannabis is not a gateway drug. We know this. It's been disproven. In fact, the data proves that cannabis is an exit drug. Yes. It's currently the most effective therapy as an exit drug for people to reduce opiate addiction that that we know. I've been saying that for not even just op- – I've never done opiates. I've realized when I became a pot smoker at a young age that I probably shouldn't do other things or I'd probably like that too. But I've been saying since I was a kid, like pot didn't cause gateways for me. It caused an exit. It made me go, okay, I can get off here, and I'm okay with just this. Where That's right. So, so many other 
not even drugs, substances allow people to just go further with it, whether it's alcohol, call it a drug or not a drug. So, man. Yeah, I'm going to tell you. So Sessions and Trump, I think that um, this is not, you know, this, the, the pre- I wrote an article in Civilized Life recently, which is about how fake, fake news affects the cannabis industry, right. too. And I'll give you my favorite example of that. Recently, um, there's been a lot of hubbub made about the signing of the budget bill that has yeah. the Rohrbacher Blumenauer Amendment in it. Yep. And that amendment obviously precludes the federal government from spending any money in jurisdictions that have legalized medical marijuana in, in, in interfering with that state's medical marijuana program or, its, or of any of its licensed businesses. And Trump made some comment that he is going to, you know, make sure to uh, follow the law and to, uh, you know, uh, enforce the law of the land. Well, if you read, uh, I guess it was, um, I think it was Mashable. Mashable said, wow, Trump made some positive comments about cannabis today. Who would have guessed? He said he's going to follow the law of the land as he was signing a law into effect the budget bill and the law that affects the budget bill. And so they saw him saying something that that was a positive. Another news outlet, I'm not going to say who, said, oh, my God, Trump finally signals that he's against the cannabis industry. He's going to come after states that even have medical marijuana programs. He didn't say either thing. He just said, as he often does, he said a very neutral statement that's subject to interpretation. And so when it comes to Trump and Sessions, I think that there's much ado about, about their comments being made. Now, that being said, uh, it's, you know, we've got to pay attention and we've got to do everything we can to inform them so that they can make the right decisions and avoid making bad decisions. I, that being said, I don't think that they're, they're going to do anything um, to come after the industry. And I think that ultimately, in many ways, it'll be terrible for the people that are still getting arrested and it'll be terrible for the states that don't have uh, medical and adult use marijuana. And it will be good for the people that are already in the business, that already understand the risks and are knowledgeable, because it's going to keep a lot of the weak, you know, sort of more aggressive, weak money out. And that will be good for the people that are currently in it. Sounds like you agree with me. There's not much of a chance that they repeal what they've done as much as there's not much of a chance that they change the schedule from one while Trump is at least in this four years of his presidency. So uh, I'm with you. A lot of talk about not much happening except the big money not coming in because it doesn't go from schedule one at least till 2020, and then we see what happens. That's right. That's right. I agree. And in fact, I'm going to say that one thing that Donald Trump has shown is he's very unpredictable. And as time goes by and as he he starts to see that this is a path to greater popularity, which it would be for him, I would not be surprised to see at some point two years from now, he might even uh, do something unexpected. Now, I'm not going to suggest that that's going to happen. I just wouldn't be surprised if it did. Leslie, I agree. Here's what I think. I think by the time the next election happens, Trump realizes that the whole country is pro-pot, and he would possibly use the uh, changing of Schedule 1 to get him reelected in 2020. That would not surprise me at all. I mean, yeah, he might he might deschedule it entirely, 
And yep. I think that that's probably, I think that you could see two things happen. One, a, um, a rapid path for, uh, for drugs to be developed through the FDA process based on cannabis, similar to what we saw in 2005 when they implemented the whole plant botanical path for drugs to be um, approved by the FDA, which was then modified again 10 years later in 2015. I wouldn't be surprised if there was a rapid path created for cannabis and drugs based upon cannabis as long as they could show that their toxicity levels would not be increased by whatever they're doing, and it's not synthetics, because cannabis is non-toxic, so the safety of it is, is, is going to be radically different than many of these synthesized drugs. And so I could see a rapid path for drug approval. Also, that's in line with his idea of, of, of limiting um, uh, a regulation. And then I could see it being descheduled entirely. So drugs that are being created on cannabis would fall in Schedule 2 or Schedule 3 or Schedule 4, depending upon what the drug is. And then for adult use, it would be regulated like alcohol and tobacco, essentially making the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms the Bureau of Cannabis, Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. I like how you put – everyone else puts cannabis last. I like how you put cannabis first with that. So, <laughs> I, we should start. People who are listening to you on Potstock Radio for the first time, tell everyone a little bit about Electrum Partners. What do you do uh, – because I know you are the founder of Electrum Partners. Why did you develop it? What, what does it do? So Electrum was um, uh, started originally just to provide some advisory services. When I was the uh, chairman of the Nevada Cannabis Industry Association, people came to me all the time and said, Leslie, what should I do to get a license? How's that going to work? And eventually, after telling people what they should do, a couple of them said, well, can, can I just engage you to do that? And I started a business just in case we had any ad advisory business or anything that happened. I just have, you know, uh, had it sort of on the shelf and and we started taking engagements in Electrum to assist people in the uh, licensing process here in Nevada. Uh, we ended up being, you know, the strategic advisor for 15 different um, licenses that were applied for. We got every single one. Three of those were the dispensaries that were very hard to get. We, we won every one of those. Uh, and then I also, being an investment banker by trade and having focused on early stage businesses for the last 25 plus years, I uh, started helping people, you know, this is a an early stage industry. It's a startup industry. And so that's my sweet spot historically. And I started advising people on what they should be doing there. That led to me having Electrum become an advisory business that essentially in many regards functions, um, you know, we, we provide advisory services with a fairly low ask in terms of the fees uh, because we get some equity for what we do because we only take on the businesses that we essentially want to be partners with. And currently Electrum is advising in areas of um, uh, marketing, in uh, communications, in business protection services. Uh, and what that means is there, in any business, you have to worry about, you know, what if there's a crisis? What if something unforeseen happens? What if there's something that happens in your industry? What if one of your employees is accused of wrongdoing? What if some of, you know, one of your products, somebody gets sick? What if, they, you know, there's all those what ifs. And they happen. That's just the way business is. And Pamela Johnston, who is part of the senior leadership at Electrum, she comes from that world where she's advised, you know, the country of 
Ontario, the, the province of Ontario around SARS, the Prime Minister of Jamaica during election season. She's been brought in to deal with issues regarding uh, special operations and communications, and she has a history of being able to help build brands and deal with these issues. We do a fair amount of that. With my background in investment banking, we also do a fair amount of advisory work around business issues, M&A transactions, around capital formation, around valuation, around strategy more than anything these days. We have been very deeply committed to the industry since we got started in 2013. Uh, and that commitment and the time that we've spent in it has given us a perspective on the future of the industry and how it's going to evolve that uh, a lot of people come to us to get access to and to understand how it's going to affect their business. Because, you know, you want to be playing the way, as the great one Wayne Gretzky said, you want to play to where the puck's going, not where it's been or where it is. And so we have really those two divisions of Electrum, one that provides business advisory and strategy and one that provides marketing and business protection. Big fan of the great ones. So love going where the puck is going to be, not where it came from. So that's genius. So tell me the companies that you're working with that you're most proud to be a part of. And then also tell me a couple of companies that you're not affiliated with that you just respect their position in the industry. Well, let's start first with the, the people that I respect in the industry. Um, uh, you know, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, long, a long list. I'm going to start primarily with the Rob Campias, the Ethan Nadelmans of the world, without whose work we would not be here today. It's their work on changing laws that have made this possible. And I, and I want everybody out there, all of your listeners, to do what they can, whether they can support these, 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 these organizations or they can get other people to support them. They, they live off of the donation and the support of people who donate to the cause, and I can't recommend it more highly. Um, ArcView, Troy Dayton. I can't, you know, I'm a huge fan of ArcView. I've been a member for years, and I love the work that they do. Um, George uh, George Jage, who was the publisher and president of MJ Business Daily, and grew it from, you know, to 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 what it is today, has done an incredible job. I know he recently left there, but the work that he's done historically has been extraordinary. Um, I'm a big, uh, I, you know, Harborside. I mean, how can you talk about this industry without talking about Harborside? How can you talk about the industry without talking about um, uh, some of the people in uh, Colorado? There's a number of businesses that are doing great work over there. Live Well is doing some great work. Open Vape, obviously, Bang, et cetera. Um, if the, biz the businesses that we work with that I'm proud to be associated with, at the top of the list is GB Sciences. I'm on the board of GB Sciences, which is a publicly traded company. Last week's or last month's guest, by the way. Yeah. Yeah, we had Growbox on and last so, month. Uh, oh yeah, I'm a big I'm a big fan of theirs. I love what they're doing. What Dr. Um, Andrea Small Howard is doing, you know, the the way John Poss has really been building that company has been extraordinary. Uh, I think um, we recently started doing some work with Kush Bottles and Nick Kovacevic over there. He has done a spectacular job with Kush Bottles. Um, we, we've been recently looking at the company Solus Tech, which we're big fans of, SLTK. And, yep. uh, you know, we, we would like to do some work with them, and I think that we might. Um, uh, and uh, some of the other businesses that we're currently uh, doing some work with 
Um, we're, we're partners with Deep Roots Harvest here in Nevada, which uh, produces some of the best flour in the state and has the biggest distribution network in the state. Uh, we have a couple of new businesses we've started to work with recently. There's a company called Rubicon Organics out of the Pacific Northwest that does greenhouse cultivation that's doing some incredible work. I can't mention the name of the company because we haven't, offici- we haven't made it official yet and for reasons, but there is a company that we met recently out of California that has, the, and, and these are scientists that come out of the pharma industry, and they have um, extractions that are, are unlike anything I've ever seen before. What do you mean? These are extractions. Extractions. They're extractions. They're extractions. So these are scientists who come out of the pharmaceutical industry, the um, nutraceutical industry, and they've worked at scale. Whether they're extracting lavender oil from lavender by the metric ton, um, or whether they're overseeing the harvest of fields of opium poppies that are then being turned into oxycodone, powdered oxycodone to be delivered to tablet manufacturers. You know, these are guys that when they produce an extraction that's supposed to be 25%. It's 25. It's always 25%. And they look at the current extractions and they say what people are doing is butchery. And they have been able to produce the first non-volatile whole plant extraction I've ever seen where it smells and tastes like flour without adding terpenes back in. They just maintain the entire terpene profile from beginning to end and the color, unlike anything I've ever seen as well. And as scientists, they say, oh, the reason why it's, it's a, reddish, a reddish hue is okay. because when you remove the chlorophyll from the plant, just like the chlorophyll leaving the leaves during fall, you're left with reds and yellows and oranges from what they call the carotenoids. And they said that's why a really well-run oil that's removed all of the chlorophyll and has not been burned will have a transparent or, uh, orange-red color to it. And so uh, we're, we're excited about that. That's somebody that we're talking to. I can't say who it is, but there'll be news soon. And then we also um, have been working with... Uh, Mistibus that has the vape, the inhaler that's been on the shelves in some of the dispensaries in California. And there's a few that's, others as well. We have, you know, we've worked with about 10 to 15 for companies. Think you have options in mass roots. What are your thoughts on mass roots? Uh, you know, I think that Isaac has done an incredible job at getting the company to where it is. And I think that all he has to do now is increase his user base, which he has been very effective at. And it's only a matter of time before those users start to have a specific value attached to them. And that, you know, it might be um, a month, it might be six months, it might be a year. But at some point, people are going to look at the 
number of users, and they're going to say, oh, yeah, well, you know, each user, when you talk about its ability to generate advertising revenue or lead revenue, is worth $270. I mean, the same way that subscribers to cable systems years ago were worth $2,000 per subscriber in an acquisition. At some point, they'll look at a mass suits and they'll say, oh, each user is worth $275, for example. And if he has 5 million users at that point, the numbers sort of speak for themselves. That's, you know, $1,375,000,000 would be the value of the company or so. It's something like that. So all he really needs to do is work on growing his user base, which he's been doing a great job, and be able to continue to fund that growth. And in the same way that, you know, Amazon was, nobody knew when it was going to make money. Nobody knew when Facebook was going to make money. Nobody knew when Yelp was going to make money. Eventually they do, and Masterroots will be the same thing. And when, when he does... The, value, the valuation that it'll get will be many multiples of where it is now. And Leslie, you're talking to a guy who's a banking fan. I've been a mortgage banker for 21 years, and I've heard you say you're a fan of banking as well. It's one of your uh, interests. I am. Tell, tell me about banking in states. Are there any states that are further ahead than others, or is everyone still just lagging with waiting for federal uh, change? So... Um, I think that Oregon and Colorado, everybody, uh, most operators have banking in some form or another. I think Washington, most people have banking in some form or another. Uh, I think Nevada has been having a hard time with it and continues to. It's a smaller state with fewer banks. And as such, there just aren't as many operators who are willing to take the risk yet, but we'll get there. Um, California, I think, has, has had some challenges. I, I, the problem is, and this is an area where Trump and Sessions really are an issue, as long as the Department of Justice is taking the, the position that it does, at least optically, uh, banks that are extremely risk-averse are going to continue to say, from a business perspective, it doesn't make sense for them. Why is that? So... It's not an issue of can they do it or can't they. The FinCEN gave guidance that has not been refuted. That specifically said in 2014, there's a path. Here's the, here's the way that you can bank legal cannabis, cannabis businesses that comply with the coal memo. <clears throat> so that's not the issue. They can do it. They don't choose to. One, because the amount of work they need to do to, from a paperwork perspective to maintain the account doesn't pencil out. They need to change too many of their systems and add too many new compliance systems that are currently not available. Oh, here's another company I'm a huge fan of. I'm a huge fan of Kind Financial and David Denenberg. I think they're going to go a very long way. Kind Financial. And I should also say we were part of one of the applications in Pennsylvania, Rise Labs, and we're big fans of Rise. Okay. And David Tuttleman, who we're working on there. And so now banking... I don't see under sessions that there's going to be banking because of that expense associated with increased burden um, that they have from, uh, from uh, 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 compliance. And then the optical risk. Once it sort of gets out that they have cannabis clients, they stand to lose other clients because of the prejudice associated with it. Many yeah. people say, well, then we should just start a cannabis bank. That's not the solution either, as we discovered in Colorado. Many people feel that the, the Fed was unfair to, um, to the credit union that was attempted there. I disagree. I don't think that the, I think that it, it was unfair. I don't think it was uh, right, but I understand the Fed's decision. If you yeah. created a bank that was a credit union just can. for the adult entertainment industry, the Fed would not give you a master Fed number. If you created a 
bank that was only for the casino industry, the Fed would not give you a master Fed number. Why? Because when you say we're going to be the fourth, fourth corner credit union, we're only going to do cannabis, you've now concentrated your risk in that financial institution. So anything that happens that affects that industry will affect the bottom line of that bank tremendously. And as we've seen, the banking system has what's called contagion. When one bank gets adversely affected, it can affect many other banks because their transactions touch upon each other in such a spider web like fashion. And so we're, the, the reason that we don't have banking, once again, is we're early on in the evolution. Sessions has scared some of the banks into saying, well, you know, this makes, makes it even worse optically. Here's the Attorney General of the United States here saying that the gateway drug theory is still, you know, a reality and that people who use cannabis are going to end up being part of the opiate addiction and good people don't smoke pot, that type of thing. And so that adds to it. And then you know, so I don't see any solution for that anytime soon, unfortunately, uh, until we see some relief legislatively through the good work of people like Congressman Blumenauer, who without, once again, another person who I've got to just give a shout out to, without Earl Blumenauer, <clears throat> this industry would not be where it is. He is the federal legislator who has been pursuing cannabis legalization longer than any other person starting back in 1973 when he was a freshman legislator in Oregon. And so it is going to be through his efforts in getting legislation passed that makes it clear that banks can bank cannabis businesses without the undue burden of compliance that they currently have. And with clarity of legality, eliminating the possibility of any enforcement in states that have regulated markets. That is the only clear path I can see to banking currently. I can't wait to see it happen. All right, and you mentioned a state that is close to us. We're from your home state. We're from Jersey. I know you're from Lake, Ho Lake Hopatcong up north of us. We're down close to the <laughs> So being we're yeah, we're 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 more Philly. You were you were. Here's what happened. You grew up in the sticks of New York. We grew up in the sticks of Philadelphia. So being close yep. to Pennsylvania. What do you see happening there? And in states like Pennsylvania and Ohio, right next door, that just recently made some changes, how do you see things happening there? Um, basically what I see, uh, Pennsylvania did an incredible job. Um, uh, I, you know, uh, State Senator Dalen Leach and, um, and Fulman, uh, they didn't – yeah, they did. Wow, yep. man, they did such a good job. That was the most bipartisan effort in any state yet to pass that comprehensive a medical marijuana program. And Pennsylvania also did something th that was very unusual. They, um, in looking at the state's rights issue, they said, well, you know, since this is a state's rights issue to make cannabis legal in any form, in what other way can we provide as the elected officials and the policymakers of the state of Pennsylvania, what can we do to provide value to the citizens of the Commonwealth? And what they said was, well, currently access to cannabis is one of the main issues. Also being able to have therapies based on cannabis that have gone through actual clinical trials so that doctors can choose to titrate so that patients can know what to expect so claims can be made that have data behind them. They created the Chapter 20 licenses, 
which are known as the clinical registrant license, where a cannabis business, a cannabis operator, can partner with a local university research hospital like Temple or Drexel or Einstein. And they can then go into clinical trials of therapies based on cannabis, essentially saying the FDA, because of the Schedule One status of the drug, is hurting the citizens of the Commonwealth by removing the, the ease of drug companies to take drugs through the trial process to prove efficacy. Hmm. That was the first state that did anything like it. And I think other states will follow, follow along. Also, <clears throat> Governor Wolf <clears throat> has done a tremendous job. He actually called our offices the days before the bill passed. And he was so proactive. He was out there calling people from the industry and saying, what should we be looking at? What are the, what are the, the gotchas? that we can avoid? What are the things that have happened in other states that the state of Pennsylvania should be watching out for to make sure right. we do it the right way? And that right. was amazing. St state Senator Leach, we've been advising him for the past nearly year on what to do now that they've passed it. And our interaction with them has been extraordinary. I have not seen any other jurisdiction be that proactive in reaching out to people from the industry to say, what do we need to be thinking about to do our best job in setting up a responsible, well-regulated industry? So Pennsylvania has done an incredible job. And I think and other I'm states are now going to be looking at that. I had been at at least five uh, events that Leach or Fulmer were at that less than 200 people attended. And they showed up and they gave their all as if there was 5,000 people there. And that's what made me go, okay, these guys are here for the right reasons. Yeah, that's right. And so now right. we're hoping that when Chris Christie leaves office, New Jersey will follow suit. And maybe someday New York will even have a real program. Can't wait because New Jersey and New York are an embarrassment to what people consider medically legal cannabis. So now – Talking about some of the states that recently approved uh, adult use, we talked about Nevada a little bit, but California, Massachusetts, and Maine, anything that you see uh, – let's put California aside. Let's go Massachusetts and Maine first. Anything that you see there different than states that have already been approved recreationally legal? Yes. Uh, the um, state government has been much less – helpful in following the will of the voters. The voters spoke. They said okay. what they wanted to see happen. And yet we've seen Massachusetts and Maine slow walk it and make it difficult. Unlike states like Oregon, which, you know, although there have been some missteps there too, they went out of their way to move it along at a fairly brisk pace. Um, Alaska took a little while, but they also were very, you know, they were really looking to do what was best for the citizens. I have okay. to say that I think that, um, that, that uh, Maine and Massachusetts have really been laggards in that regard. Really? Um, I'll say, crazy. yeah, yeah, Over I mean, listen, it's, 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 it's not, you know, the, the governor of Maine is not a fan. Um, the mayor of Boston was not a fan. And uh, they have, uh, and they've gone out of their way, in my opinion, to slow it down. Nuts, nuts, because they're, uh, especially Maine, is a state where you would think that would have been an easy, you know, an, an easy move to make for the state of Maine. So Massachusetts, I get Maine, I'm surprised by. 
Now, what about Hawaii? What's going on in Hawaii? If you've done any due diligence on how things are working out there in the 50th state? Yeah. Yeah, they're a year away from having reciprocity, which um, I think will be huge for the state of Hawaii. You know, making it so you can finally go down there and use your medical marijuana card from another jurisdiction, your recommendation to get access down there. Um, I'd like to see Hawaii go adult use, and eventually it probably will. Uh, right now, Vermont looks like it might be doing that. But, you know, Hawaii is, is still a, a small market. They were, you know, a little more restrictive than other jurisdictions, very limited number of licenses. Um, they didn't include reciprocity right off the bat, which just didn't make any sense to me at all. You know, they're such a tourist-driven market. How can you adopt a medical marijuana program in a state that almost their entire economy is based off tourism? Right. And say, we want you to come to visit our jurisdiction, but if your medicine that you take is cannabis, we're going to force you to, one, either not come visit us because we won't let you buy it legally in our state, even though we have a medical marijuana program for the citizens of the state, for our residents, or two, you have to break the law and either fly with it and take your chances or buy it on the black market. And who knows, you might get something that's tainted with mold, mildew, fungus, pesticides, or, or fungicides. Just ridiculous that they didn't include reciprocity from day one. Yeah, that's crazy because you're going to the place where everyone goes there for the natural beauty of, of Hawaii and to not be able that's to right. use medicine when you get there or have to go through their process would be, right, would be crazy. So and, Leslie, yeah, makes more sense. and now Leslie, I want to take a couple of minutes because we are Potstock Radio, and you are an investor. So I would like you to give people who are current investors in pot stocks or possible future investors, you know, people who aren't accredited, people who have to go find their earnings with the general public on an exchange. What do you tell people who are thinking about investing in pot stocks? Uh, you know, what do they need to know to really do their due diligence to find the right company instead of a reverse merged piece of crap that's going to take all their money? Okay. So first, we have some structural problems in the U.S. markets that create an issue around this. People are saying to me, Leslie, how come, all, how come companies are going public in Australia and Canada, but nobody's going public in the U.S. or not that... I mean, some are, but it's so hard. There are all these reverse mergers. Yep. Well, as a result right. of, a, of, a, of a bad implementation of Sarbanes-Oxley, that made it, a, a, you know, whether your business does $3 million in revenue, $30 million in revenue, $300 million in revenue, or $30 billion in revenue, your Sarbanes-Oxley compliance is, is pretty much it's one size fits all. And that's right. really not, not reasonable. And not so we, our, our, our structural the way our financial markets um, have been affected structurally by regulation that was implemented as a result of the corruption cases that we saw with the Enrons and Tycos and Adelphias and MCI WorldComs, we threw the baby out with the bathwater. Instead of creating compliance and regulatory fixes, to specifically present those problems in these giant companies that were using arcane accounting uh, uh, methods to be able to, you know, essentially lie to the public and, and rob them by having their stock price be inflated based upon artificial numbers. 
and, and, and tar- instead of creating a compliance that targets them specifically, the compliance targets everybody, even if you could not be doing that because your company is too small. And so there isn't a path to become publicly traded in the U.S. markets anymore except for a reverse merger, a Form 10 filing, a Chapter 11, Section 45 reorganization exemption, um, and maybe, you know, the very rare small IPO. It used to be that there were investment banks that made their money bringing small companies public. The economics aren't there anymore. The, the regulatory risk is too high. FINRA is completely out of control. And the business reason for being able to do that doesn't exist. So all there are are reverse mergers. Because if you're an entrepreneur looking to get capital, there's no longer an investment bank that's willing to raise money for you and bring you that capital with a salesman that's you know, getting his, his clients to invest in your private placement. That salesman, that, that system kept your cost of capital down. Now you have to meet with angel investors and, and VCs and private equity investors who have a much lower risk tolerance. And they're going to ask for you know, bigger hooks. They're going to ask for ratchet provisions. They're going to ask for things that if you miss you know, your, your targets, they're going to own 51% and they're going to take control of the company. These are the types of things these investors are facing. So when they get the chance to do one of those crappy reverse mergers, but the, good the guy who's helping them do it says, oh, but I'll, I'll give you half a million dollars at the same time. I'll invest half a million when you do it. Okay. They take the money because there's not, a, not another path. Um, or they change? end up going to Canada. How do we change that in the States? That's a million-dollar answer. <laughs> well, yeah, that's, I mean, the way we change it that's is not. FINRA <laughs> has to be absorbed by the SEC and then essentially shut down 90% of its activity. The We've Financial Regulatory Agency, which used to be the National Association of Securities Dealers, it was a trade association, a self-regulatory organization. It was a represent. You know, you were a member of it if you were a small investment bank. That's not the case. They're they're an out of control entity that essentially has their own budget that they strong arm out of the existing members, and they act like a de facto government agency when they have no government oversight of substance to speak of. And so they really they really hurt the U.S. economy and the and the financial markets in a dramatic way. And now, how has how have things changed with companies being able to touch the plan? You know, I I know most companies that are traded on the U.S. markets can't touch the plan. Yet I see so many companies that are figuring out ways around that. Tell people how that works in the states compared to the cap. Well, it's not. You know, there isn't a specific prohibition on being publicly traded and touching the plant. It's what really is going on is that because people assume that the SEC will not allow their registration statement to go effective, allowing their you know, restricted stockholders to, to be able to get the restriction removed, they end up just assuming that you can't be publicly traded and touch the plant. But as we can see by Terratech and GB Sciences, that's not the case. They're okay. both businesses that touch the plant, and they are publicly traded, and their registration statements have been deemed effective. You, you cannot likely get off the QB and the QX onto the American or the NASDAQ or the New York, certainly, 
until such time as federal prohibition drops. Although that's not, you know, that's not a foregone conclusion either. So the answer is um, investors need to be doing their due diligence, obviously. Um, I don't, I wouldn't assume that just because something's traded on the Canadian market, that makes it better. Although the stocks tend to do better in the Canadian market, primarily because Canadians want to invest their money in U.S. businesses right now. Why? Mm -hmm. Because the Canadian currency has been getting hurt by the price of oil, because so much of their economy is affected by the price of oil. And so uh, with that being the case, you know, they want to invest outside of Canada. They love to invest in the U.S. What better way to invest in the U.S. than through the Canadian exchange into a U.S. company? Uh, so you get the benefit of having the U.S. company agree to so many of the provisions of Canadian law, giving those Canadian investors Canadian protections on a Canadian publicly traded vehicle. So the U.S. company, if there was any type of dispute, would have to go up to Canada to defend itself. So the Canadians love it. I mean, they get, you know, they get home field advantage. And at the same time, they get the benefit of taking their currency and putting it into a U.S. company that hopefully will hedge them against the fluctuation of the Canadian currency. So what should investors be doing? They should be looking for uh, things like that ETF. I can't remember the name of it. that just started trading in Canada. Uh, small investors who are really looking to get into this industry, at this point the small companies are very hard to find, you know, how do you find a GV Sciences? How do you find a Cush Bottles? How do you find a TerraTech? How do you find a Solus Tech? It's hard, it's hard to find them. That's right. It's hard, to, it's hard to find them. But when you do find them, you do your due diligence, you talk with the company. If there's any way that you have the time and the inclination to try to talk to some of the company's customers to see what the customers say about them, do that. If you can talk to the vendors who sell to the company and you can find a way to just get on the phone, and if you're going to really take this seriously as an investor, then doing those types of things can make a big difference. It will give you a vision into the company you might not otherwise get. And then additionally, if you want the diversification, uh, you look at things like this um, uh, ETF or the REIT that are being traded publicly that give you exposure to many businesses, not just concentrating your risk into one. Leslie, what do you see as the biggest difference between companies that are likely to make it in the long run and those are likely to struggle? Brand. Okay, let's, let's, sep let's, let's first separate out uh, business to business and business to consumer. Um, although it's very much the same, they, they, there are some, you know, there, it just manifests slightly differently. But brand. It, right now, we have this massive um, uh, explosion of an industry. The, the black market's being migrated to a regulated market. People who are saying, you know, I've, I really miss using cannabis, but you know, I didn't want to take the chance of buying it from some guy in the corner in the you know, Wendy's parking lot where I could get arrested or robbed or you know, whatever, worse, or get something that's contaminated. Now that I can go buy it from a store where I can return it if it's something wrong, there might be a recall and I know what to do. Yeah, so, you know, that migration of black market to regulated markets leading to this explosion. That explosion has, has some unique aspects to it. And one of the things that it's doing is it's creating this environment where everybody has high margins. And high margins hide lots of errors. And what, what I mean is you have a lot of 
you know, engineering-driven products. Somebody, a couple of guys get together and say, hey, we're going to open a dispensary. We're going to call it, you know, Joe's Dispensary or whatever the business name might be. They don't really spend a lot of time thinking about brand, about um, consumer need states, about mm -hmm. what product isn't, isn't out there. What are the consumers already asking for that they're not getting? No, they come up with an idea, like an engineering different product, say, oh, this is a great idea. Let's see if we can market it. But because there's such a demand for the product and because it's such an enormous industry, you know, they can be profitable very quickly. That is going to hurt them in the long run. Because in the long run, the people that are thinking about brand presence, that are thinking about what are the customers asking for that they're currently not getting, what are the points of pain that aren't being addressed? And how can we address them efficiently, effectively, and easily so the consumer can have a really great experience? You have to assume that the middle of the bell curve of your customers are not going to have a lot of time. They're not going to want to spend a lot of time. They're not going to have a long attention span. They're going to either get what you're saying or not really quickly. And eventually the survivors, the long-term survivors, are going to be the people that built real brands, of which I don't know there, there, are, there, not, there are many yet, and who are thinking once again to the future. Where's the puck going? And they're going to be thinking about how do we play to what this is going to look like in a few years. For example, people are just you know clamoring for these medical marijuana licenses, millions of dollars being spent on them. Well, what happens if, if federal prohibition does drop and it gets descheduled? What happens when a, uh, when a license is just like a liquor license? Those won't have any value anymore. You need to be thinking about how things are going to change. So we are talking to Leslie Botshore, and he is the founder of Electrum Partners. Check him out on Twitter, Leslie, B-O-C-S. K-O-R, and then check out the website, electrumpartners.com. So I have a question for you, Leslie. You were an investment banker during the boom of the internet, and we saw that go up ridiculously, become such a huge market, and then crash. What do you tell people to keep an eye out for in this industry? You know, because anything that goes up quickly can come down just as fast. What are the warning signs you you uh, want people to keep an eye out for as far as cannabis goes? So we're lucky in the cannabis industry because of the negatives associated with it. It also prevents the boom bust cycle from happening. Hmm, true. So what you'll start, you, so, you know, for example, what goes on in Washington doesn't affect what goes in Oregon. What do I mean? If you're a Washington provider, the wholesale price could go to 2400 a pound because the market you know, is experiencing some type of an uh, a, a increase in demand or a decrease in supply. And people could be selling it for 1200 a pound right across the border in Oregon. won't affect you at all. It may as well be on another planet. It doesn't affect your, your, your margins. So that ring fence around each state is, an anti, is almost like an anti-competitive regulation. Think of it like isolationist policies that countries take on to protect their markets. It does. It protects the market. It protects it from boom and bust cycles. Additionally, the fact that the large players, the InBevs, the CVSs, the Walgreens, the Conagras, um, and other businesses, you know, the, the, certainly the tobacco companies, they can't come in. They're not going to come in while it's federally illegal. They're going to wait until that drops. They've got too much at risk. And as a result, that creates an opportunity 
for us. So for the time being, I'm not as concerned about devastating boom and bust cycles. I mean, there'll be ups and downs. Don't get me wrong. When federal prohibition drops, that's when you need to start being careful, curiously enough, because that's when the real boom is going to happen. And then, of course, soon after that will be when the real bust happens. Right. I could see that. Yeah. That's, that's when your eyes are going to open is after federal changes that's right. happen. That's when you could see the boom and the bust. That makes sense, too. That's right. That's right. Because until then, I see what you're saying. There's really right now 26 different uh, smaller markets. That's right. Markets they can't. They can't have that big. That you, there is no national player yet. I mean, as much yeah. as Dixie is in many different markets and Open Vape is in many different markets, they're not truly a national player. They're just licensing to other jurisdictions. They're not really in those jurisdictions in the same way that you know Coca-Cola is in different jurisdictions. You know, Pepsi, Anheuser-Busch, CVS is in different jurisdictions. It's hard. You can't cross state lines. You've got to be careful of these. And each market is so different. The regulations in Oregon are completely different than the regulations in Colorado, which are completely different than the ones in California, which are completely different from the ones in Nevada. And as such, every market is so different that the businesses don't get the efficiencies that normally exist as they grow that allow these boom-bust cycles to happen. These, these difficulties that we have the, with the market are forcing the operators to get smarter, and they're sort of taking a little bit of the steam out of it. You know, it's sort of like creating a artificial restraints on the growth of the industry that, for the time being, are actually helping us because it's keeping us from having that boom-bust cycle that then leads to all this roadkill with only a couple of large players left. Leslie Boxer, by the way, I, I pronounced that wrong last time you were on the show, by the way, Leslie, because I, I had it pronounced Leslie Boxer. So I heard you pronounce it today and wanted to go, shit. I now have to correct me mispronouncing his name last time he was on the show. So I am now proud to have Leslie Botchsor from Electrum Partners. And awesome to meet you out in, vet, uh, out in Colorado a few years ago. Really knew you were going to be one of the players in the industry and glad to see I was right and uh, look forward to having you back. I still remember you guys. I remember you at that table. I remember seeing you out there. I remember that. That's awesome. I didn't realize that that was the first time we met. That's really fantastic. That was the first, it was me, you, and Derek Peterson from TRTC. I met you when I met Derek and uh, thought the world of him, could tell you were a fan of him too, and then right away was like, all yep. right, this guy knows what he's doing. So. All right, Leslie, again, man, thank you for being on for the second time on Potstock Radio. Looking forward to having you on again. You really are to me, one of the people who just understands everything, all aspects of cannabis. So awesome to have you on. Thank you so much. It was great. I really had a lot of fun. I look forward to seeing you again in person. Come down to all Vegas. Right, we'll, go, we'll, we'll go visit some of the shops together. Can't Woo! wait. Can't wait. Leslie <laughs> Botsor from Electrum Partners. Awesome guest on Potstock Radio. Now we're going to go back to another former guest. He was CEO. He's now chairman of was NHL. They changed. I love their ticker. They're now EAT on the CSE and Spliff, S-P-L-I-F, on the OTCQB. Let's go to David Posner from Nutritional High. How are you tonight, David? 
Awesome, awesome. Yeah, it is a shame with that NHL symbol, you know. With, I did, uh, so you know, I being a Canadian know. boy, it's like you right. know, it, it's one of those. You were the Canadian you know, guy, and you had to I'd say. Why <laughs> did you give up? Why the ticker change? You know what? Just it, it, truthfully, the NHL had sent us, you know, <laughs> some requests. Let's <laughs> just say, and you know what? At the time, and even now, I, I wasn't gonna like, like we actually probably had a legal, we, like our lawyer said, you know, that you could fight it, but I didn't want to spend shareholder money on fighting a symbol. Yeah. Like you weren't you know, nutritional. Go, yeah, you know, so and and we liked the symbol eat, so we were like, you know, it's it kind of goes with exactly what we're doing and, you know, our vision and focus. So, you know, so the Canadian kid had to give up a little bit on that one. Right. If you got to give up NHL, it's when you're getting into edibles and you get E A T as your as your ticker symbol instead of NHL. Yeah, so, and, you know, our U.S. symbol, I kind of liked as well. You know, at the time, they were like, you need to figure, you need to have a five-letter symbol with an F at the end. So, you know, Split was one of the first things that came to mind. So, you know, we kind of like that one, one too. Split is a good one. So tell us, David, last time we talked to you, you were CEO, now chairman. Tell us what made yeah. you make move to chairman from CEO. Well, you know what, truthfully, and, and you know, it's interesting because, you know, I've sat on uh, – I sat on a panel and I've spoken with Leslie a bunch of times who you just uh, had on before, who's really, you know, extremely knowledgeable, as you were saying. And, you know, a big, you know, a big part of, I guess, the, the, the start of Nutritional High and, you know, going back to your conversation before was, you know, to get that national presence. And we really believe that national presence was going to happen by us, you know, getting licenses in all these states. So my background, I'm a real estate guy and, you know, I'm proficient on the application side. But when it really comes to making candies, like, you know, I'm, I'm not the candy man, you know. So, yeah. we, you know, we, 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 you know, have a facility in, and licensed in uh, Colorado. We have a building in Oregon. We just uh, – we, we acquired a license in Nevada, and we're just, like, closing that deal. You know, we have a dispensary in Illinois. Um, and we're just trying to really get into more and more states. But what happened was I wanted – you know, on the oil extraction side – we were really proficient and, you know, we're doing the ethanol based extraction. So we're making like the clear oil, but on the edible side, I really wanted someone who all these ever done was make candy. So we went and, you know, kind of searched for about a year and found a, a CEO and he ran the second largest uh, private label chocolate manufacturing company in the U S and I mean, he started from like the ground up. So he knows how to install the equipment. He knows how to temper chocolate you know, he knows how to make caramels, but, you know, but on, on, you know, in a very industrial level, you know, side. And the whole thing with Nutritional High is we wanted to take the edibles from kind of that baking platform to doing it in a semi-automatic fashion. And really, we want to do it in an automatic fashion, but we probably wouldn't do that, you know, until we move into California, where it's a huge, huge market. Because, you know, as you said, state by state, you know, these semi-automated edible machines, you know, that that there are is, is more than enough to produce for an Oregon or Colorado or Nevada, you know. So if you got sure. into a massive state, then we, you know, we'd kind of get the equipment that went, you know, could produce, you know, a lot quicker and a lot faster. And and he's just has the experience with this. And if, you know, aside from making high quality chocolates, he's made candies and gummies and you know all sorts of different stuff. So that's why for me it was always, you know, I kind of went into nutritional high with the whole idea that I was going to 
you know, get a push forward, get all the licenses and continue. Like I still work at the company. It's just a little different rules. I'm just kind of there more on the future nutritional high. And he's really there for the execution day to day. With the rest and of I do get that. And I do get that, that, you know, he's the candy man. And if you're going into edibles, then you need someone who has experience in creating the product more than someone who your job was to acquire the real estate, what you guys have. So my first question is why the real estate? Why would you – and just explain to current or future investors why expansion sure. was important before really capitalizing on your, your home country, let's say, in, in Canada. Well, okay, well Canada is a different animal, and especially when we started, you weren't even allowed to make extracts of oh, So yeah. anybody who was a licensed flour. producer now, I believe there's 43 of them. Um, they, they were only allowed to grow marijuana since then there's a, and don't quote me exactly, but in the range of 10 people have uh, licenses to make extracts, but it's a very weakened kind of extract tincture that they have. And there's, so there's right now the government hasn't come through with, you know, what the future is going to be in the edibles and whether there's going to be edibles. And when I say edibles, you know, anything that you can basically, you know, intake uh, you know so whether it's a pill or candy or a drink or whatever they really haven't gone into any detail on it so you know at the time when we set up the, the company like it just wasn't even in the realm of possibility and to this day it still is not so you know, in the future canadian, being a canadian sorry? why canada why is canada so open to cannabis yet so against the extractions um, I, I think they were just doing it step by step. I don't think they're against the extractions. I just think they want to know how they're going to test it and kind of to take it forward in, in a way that, you know, makes it so they can ensure the safety and the quality. And, you know, they started on the growth side. And if you look at Health Canada and, you know, the rules in comparison to on the U.S. side, I mean, it's, you know, the, the build-outs and just the cost of setting up in Canada compared to the U.S. for a traditional 20,000 square foot grow, for example, is far greater in Canada. You know, so there are pretty strict rules, and they take it very seriously. And not that they don't in you know all the other states, but Health Canada in general, you know, is kind of looking at this like it's the first step to pharmaceutical. You know, so I think that's the approach they're taking. And I think they're just doing it slow, and uh, they don't feel they're in a rush. But you know, there's definitely going to be extracts of some form and there already are in like a little more of a weakened state. So there's definitely going to be extracts. This it's just what, what, and you know, what, what the, what the milligram doses are going to be and what types of products they're going to allow and what type of packaging and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And now it looks like your two big products are the edibles and then the concentrate. So is, or, or they both something that's going to be produced just in the States or are you trying to produce those in Canada as well? Well, you know what, in Canada, like we obviously don't have a license and we haven't gone after a license in Canada. What, what our, you know, concept even from the beginning was, was we were going to, you know, set up this team and, and build an operations team of proficiency, you know, in the U S establish a brand and come the time that it's going to come through in Canada that we would do a, a joint venture with one of the licensed producers. You know, a lot of some of the licensed producers, you know, will will be able to make the extracts and at a high quality, and others, 
you know, will want to kind of partner up with somebody who can already do it and take that piece, you know, away from them so they don't have to worry about it and they can focus on the growth side. So that's kind of how we're looking at it. And, you know, even on an international level, like, you know, we haven't, you know, we've been looking really over at Europe as well. You know, Germany's just coming out with the licenses and, you know, it's the same thing. We don't want to go at nutritional high. We, we kind of want to have a focus of just opening these extract facilities and not opening these massive grows. And this way it's much less capital intensive for the company. And, you know, the CapEx on these build-outs is a lot less and we can kind of get into more places in a quicker fashion. So, you know, but we do want to either partner or joint venture with someone, you know, who does get the the first Germany licenses that are coming up, you know, like Germany has 86 million people. And, you know, it's, it's pretty centralized in Europe as far as location-wise. So we really think, you know, that's a great market. I really believe UK and Spain are going to come on board relatively soon. Like in, in the European market, I mean, I would say Spain has like the, the greatest counterculture and kind of marijuana community. You know, they have, sure. you know. All drugs are on, so, there. Yeah. They're way ahead of the rest of the world. Right, right. So, I mean, I think they're coming on soon. So, you know, for us, it was kind of to make an impact in, you know, uh, in the U.S. market and do what we could do because we were allowed to do it. And as time evolves, we'll either go and get the licenses in these countries or we'll joint venture. And, you know, for us, it, we're, we're just, you know, the first thing we do is look at the loss. So, I mean, the biggest, you know, and you were talking about it before, you know, what the rules are in Oregon compared to the Nevada, compared to, you know, somewhere like Arizona and, and just even the corporate structure of how you have to do it. So, you know, I've really spent with our team, you know, three years looking state to state at certain, you know, at all the laws. So, you know, in something like Oregon, you can have direct ownership and some a place like Washington has to be hundred percent owned by a Washington resident. So it's very restrictive. You know, you go into a state like Massachusetts and, you know, it's a not for profit, you know, scenario and it's, you, there's no direct ownership at all, you know. So, you're like, so when you're running these public companies, it has to make sense too. It's not just what's a great state; it's what's a great state where you can make money and have the proper structure that you want. So, when I look around, David, I am super excited for you guys about being able to have the name Jimi Hendrix attached to what you guys are doing. Does the company still have the license to use the Hendrix name? And I, I know there was some kind of like yeah. fight between. Yeah. It seemed like you know the what family- they, they had a fight before we got the rights, and they had a fight after. <laughs> you know? okay. But yeah, we still have we we still have um, you know the right to use the Jimi Hendrix name, and and we're just at a point now where you know in in the near future you know you know we're gonna execute on on what we were doing. You know the Jimi Hendrix, we had the rights for uh, gummies, hard candies, and uh, drinks. So that was what Nutritional High got the rights for. And right wait, now... Wait. Does, that mean someone else, does that mean someone else has the rights to make chocolates and cookies that would be Hendrix? Or joints? They, they have not given out the rights, but I, I guess in theory, yeah. you know, in okay. theory that... So, yeah, in theory, it's possible. And, and, you know, we're very close, you know, with you know, with the experienced Hendrix guy. So if we wanted to come out with a chocolate, we could discuss it. You know, at, at the time, that was kind of the focus of niche products we wanted to make that were unique, that we thought Jimmy, having Jimmy's brand would attract more than a typical chocolate. So, 
Now, are is Hendricks products selling anywhere through nutritional high, or is that something that's more? No, uh, no, that's something that's going to come out. So yeah, it, it hasn't it hasn't started yet. You know, it, you know, a part of it is you know there's a duality to it. We we have our our flagship brand, the Fly brand, which is in Colorado, and you know now we're going to be coming out within the Oregon, Nevada. You know, we want to obviously build up our brand, and you know we always felt that the Hendricks brand was great and you know much like you were saying nobody has a national presence it just gives yeah. people the ability who aren't you know especially in many of the recreational markets who don't know one brand from the other and they're not sure right. you know they don't know bang from open vape you know when they see the hendrix that they would you know pick it off the shelf at least try it for the first time and say hey this this actually tastes good i like this product oh it's made by nutritional and health. Then they try our other products you know so that, that was the goal of the hendrix yeah, and having having that Hendrix line, does that allow you to call something like a Purple Haze product or a Haze sure, Joe sure. brand? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Dang. Exactly. And so, you know, this is we're allowed to use any of the we're not we're allowed to use the the uh, titles of the songs. It's you know, mm. so. genius, right there. You can yeah, have the so, fuck. Yeah, and and we really plan on it. Like we really are going to come out with like a big you know, launch on the Hendrix. We just, we, for us, we really, you know, all, and all this stuff as well, when you start this, you don't realize, and we're proficient, like I ran a real estate fund. I built right. out a lot of facilities. And Jim, the CEO, has built out tons of facilities and installed equipment. But just to go through all the local authorities and all these states at the same time, it actually takes a fair amount of time. And we just wanted to make sure everything was tested, everything was right. Like we weren't in a rush to be the first movers in the market. We want to be, you know, in the market earlier than ever, like than most, but we just want to have a solid foundation. Like we, we tested our oils for months before, you know, we, we sent the first one to the dispensary and it's the same thing now on the edible side. We really, we had to legally be allowed to make our extracts before we could start really testing them in our edibles. And, you know, so we just want everything, and I don't want to say we want everything to be perfect because if you see perfection, you're re- you're really not. You're never going to get, you know, we're never going to get ten out of ten out, out of the gate. There's always going to be, you know, a learning curve, and you're always going to get better and better over time. But we want to have it at a certain point because you know when you go into these dispensaries and when you step into the market, you want to put your, you know, your best foot first and you know really show something of quality. So we really haven't rushed, and you know some of the shareholders wish we just kind of rushed and did and and went like light and quick, but, you know, I think they'll appreciate, and I think the whole marijuana market, and, you know, I I can see from the dispensary owners already that they understand that we take pride in what we do, and, you know, we're going to do it, and we're, you know, we're not complete slow pokes, but, you know, we're not not doing this, this, uh, this whole business on steroids, we want to do it right. I like and appreciate that you want to do it right, but I also understand as an investor where they're going, well, wait, what happens here through the burn? Like, how do you make that happen if you're going into all of these states without producing revenue? How does that happen to not just dilute the company to get to where you need to be? Oh, completely. And I mean, you know, what we did was we had a very low burn at the beginning. I mean, our CEO was taking $57,000 a year, just to give an example, you know, we, we really had you know, you as far as the corporate GNA and everything was, was very low. And that's why we wanted Colorado, like Illinois operational, it's in revenue. Um, Colorado, 
is in revenue. And then at that point in time, we're like, okay, now we can go because we have both of them in revenue. Now we can go into Nevada. Now we can go into Oregon and do this expansion because exactly I wouldn't do it before. And we have lots of opportunities to kind of jump in before. And I was like, guys, we got to be producing. We got to be producing revenue. And, and then this way, what happens is you start to get some revenue. You know, in Colorado, it starts to grow. Illinois starts to grow. And then Oregon jumps on. And then Nevada jumps on. And, you know, and we plan on being in, you know, a bunch of more states. So, you know, this, this is kind of the plan. But it's like as the revenue ramps up in each of these states, then we can jump into a couple more states or into another country, you know. And exactly what you're saying. If not, you just dilute the company. Yeah. And, nobody, and then nobody wins, you know. And, Too much you know, in we, the future. We also, yeah, to the future is great as long as the present is getting you to the future. So I like that. And now in Colorado, exactly. you said it's exactly. already in revenue. So the and, and uh, so is Illinois. Already... And Illinois has been in revenue since about October. And Colorado, yeah. you know, Colorado, uh, you know, also in the new year we went into revenue. So now we can start doing, you know, the build out of, you know, we can start doing the build out of uh, Oregon, and we can acquire the Nevada license, you know, and and the, the real estate for it because the nutritional high we do we do actually uh, acquire the real estate we find it it's, it's a big piece and there's a lot of leaseholds that you're putting in and to not own it is is foolish on many levels and this also you know has created great value because you know every state where we've gotten a license and you know the the facility has been tagged you know right away we, we've been getting interest from you know different people as far as, you know, the value of the property and just the yeah, loan yeah. values we can get for even mortgaging it and stuff. And, and the way our overhead and the way Nutritional High's model goes, you know, really it's so much cheaper than renting. And what yeah. we're also doing too is we did a partnership with a company called Lakeside and they're, they're going through a name change right now. And it was some, some uh, it was on the board of it. It was a publicly traded company as well in Canada on the board was a guy named Hamish Sutherland. He was the COO of Bedrican, and Bedrican was the company that merged with Tweed, with Tweed and became Canopy Growth, the biggest marijuana company. Um, they have they have another guy named Rob Schwartz who was uh, involved in one of the LPs developing it and building it out in in BC. And so they have kind of this super team of growers, and they're doing deep water culture. And what we're doing is they're going to be going into the majority of nutritional high facilities and, and growing. So we'll be able to get trim from them, but also we'll be able to get more or less a royalty for, you know, acquiring the licenses, you know, in these states. So there's additional revenue. And right now what we're looking at doing is bringing on, you know, and, and these have not been signed, like we're Lakeside to sign deal. But we're also looking at very closely at, at, at dealing with um, people that are, you know, don't have products that are non-competing to us where they can actually manufacture in our facility, buy our extract from us, and also pay us a fee or a royalty. And this way, we really have no overhead costs for the facilities. We'd be getting a royalty on top of it from these companies because the companies would be paying rent plus a royalty. And this way, we can also, in a lot of states, use the same salesperson to go around to all the facilities and instead of having two salesperson in a place like, say, Oregon, we can have five or six. So we can really have that exposure and be, you know, servicing the dispensaries in the best possible way. And we have all these non-competing products, like, you know, whether somebody's selling flour compared to our edibles, you know, if we can all kind of go together. So we're trying to create this kind of cooperative team model within nutritional 
and this way, you know, on a cost basis, it would cost nutritional basically almost nothing to operate. Plus, we'd have these extra revenue streams, and we'd have like a super sales force. That not saying we couldn't afford it, but you know, we it, it wouldn't be you know in the best interest of one company to have as many sales guys in these states as we plan on having. So we're really you know kind of focused, and that's why getting these licenses is so valuable. And though we'd like to license in certain states eventually and you know you were talking about open vape and you know they've done an exceptional job and kind of gotten across the country you know part of what we want to do is kind of enforce our own quality and standards and eventually yes we'll license in a certain fashion but we really want to have that platform of six eight states that we're actually doing and then go into that real licensing model if we're if we're going to do it at all you know right, a couple more kind questions. Of like franchising a hamburger place but you don't really have many hamburger places. You need to get your SOPs down perfectly. You need to have your operations and your quality control and everything perfect. And then you can kind of go into like step two or else, or else you'll see you kind of take one step forward and two steps back. Cause you know, somebody, the last thing you want somebody to do is tarnish your brand and it happens very easily. All right. So, Tell us what the purpose of the 40% ownership in Aura Health was back in November of 2016. What was important about that? So, so Aura, Aura, you know, was – they have medical clinics in, um, they have in, near, in Las Vegas, about 10 minutes from the Strip. They have in Arizona, and they're doing a big push now in Florida. They're looking to open a whole variety of them. And they, you know, were looking for – at first, they were looking for, A, some money, but it, was, it wasn't really a monetary thing. They were looking, in Canada, you can actually do a spinoff of another public company. So they felt if they went public through Nutritional High as a spinoff, that would give a lot of exposure because Nutritional High was you know, the top trading stock in volume on the CSE the last two years. And you know they just felt that they kind of went through us. It would give a lot of optics and vision to their stock. So nutritional did lend the money and did a convertible debenture, but really acquired shares because they were going to do this spinoff. And, you know, after a while, um, the CEO just decided to do an IPO, but nutritional still has these shares and, you know, we're a big part of it. Like I believe nutritional still owns, it's a little less than 20%, but about 18%. And uh, Canaccord, which is one of the biggest, you know, Underneath the banks, like uh, brokerage houses and in Canada, just did a debenture for them at sixty cents. And Nutritional High is uh, holding in the range of five million shares. So there's about thirty three million dollars of value right now. And as it IPOs, I mean, you just don't know, but there's a belief that it's going to go a lot higher. So you know, this was something for a hundred twenty thousand dollar loan and kind of just the just the fact that they kind of wanted to be associated with our company, we turned that into $3 million and hopefully by the IPO, I mean, I, you don't want to project, but hopefully it's more, you know, so. so that's All right, we are exciting. talking. And, and, and we think there could be some, you know, in certain states where we're, you know, in that, in, in certain medical states, as we go in with them, there could be, you know, be able to work and, you know, mutually benefit each other but you know just as a sole investment it was great and you know the same thing happened with lakeside we actually lent lakeside five hundred thousand dollars because they were going to be acquiring 
a grow license in Nevada, and for that, nutritional acquired shares, and they're also coming into nutritional's facility in Colorado, which they're going to gain, you know, as I said, rent and being able to share the sales staff, and so and that was a great that was great as well. Like Lakeside stock when it started was around five cents um, when all the board of directors were put on for the on the cannabis side, and. Lakeside's actually delisted. They went off the Canadian Venture Exchange, and they're going on the CSE. Uh, the, the Venture Exchange hasn't allowed U.S. marijuana companies on it, and the CSE, you know, is very friendly towards it, so they're relisting on the CSE. And uh, the last trade was $0.30. Cents. So, you know, Nutritional also gained a lot of, you know, value, you know, from that whole transaction with Lakeside. So they, they have a million shares of that, so that's another $300,000 plus. You know, so we, so you know, we we've been really doing deals aside from you know our core business, and you know we want to continue to do that. But you know, we really are focused on our core business. These things just kind of came at us, and they made perfect sense. So we were like, hey, we don't mind giving a loan that, you know, that was secured on our side. So a loan that paid off, and you still got some equity in the company. So we are talking to David Posner, chairman now of Nutritional High International. Check them out at nutritionalhigh.com. On Twitter, they are S-P-L-I-F-N-H-L. On the CSE, they are E-A-T. On the O-T-C-Q-B, they're S-P-L-I-F. And I want to ask you, I'm going to blow your I'm going to throw you a little curveball with my last question because sure. it was a, a, a term that I've never heard before. Is this a hockey question? No, no, this is my question. I wanted to ask you a hockey question. It has nothing to do with you driving cars on lakes in Canada. It's what is short path distillation technology? The, the short path? Short so, path. You know what? And this is, this is you know, as, as all of it, you know, all, <laughs> Billy, our, our extraction specialist, you know, on the technical side, goes through it a lot better than, than myself. But, uh, you, you know, what, it, it, it's a way of refining. And, I, I mean, we, you know, when you started with extracts, most people were making the butane. And butane obviously makes a lot of great products. The downside is, you know, the odd explosion or two, you know. Um, the next kind of – the next step was people started doing with uh, both propane and, and CO2. And so the short path is an extraction technique that really allows – the extract to be purified and the terpenes to be really stripped out of it. And at at that point in time, so if you're making an edible, so it's an ethanol based uh, extraction. And with the short path, you're really, you know, you're you're really stripping out the, the uh, terpenes and there's a great separation of the, of the cannabinoids. And at that point um, we can reintroduce them. So when you're using it for edibles, it's great because, it's basically flavorless. And then when you want to, we can reintroduce the terpenes and, you know, on the, yeah, on the terpenes and, and add flavor for like the smoking side. So it, it takes it to, and the product is, and the end product is called the clear. And so, you know, you're getting it at like the most clear and refined point of extract today, you know? So, you know, if you look in the California market or in certain markets where they have the clear, the clear will sell at a premium to a CO2 oil. And I mean, obviously if the quality of the clear is good and the quality of the you know, CO2 oil. I tried to throw you a curveball. Can't even throw Dave Posner a curveball. He knows it all. Well, this is what we do. I mean, like, you know, if, if you heard Billy talk about it, the Billy Morrison, you know, our extraction specialist, I mean, you know, he takes it to such levels that, you know, 
I, I'm just, you know, I'm giving the layman's terms, and honestly, compared to him, I'm a complete layman. You know, he's like, go buy the real estate, Dave. So, you know, so. Well, I'm a real estate guy, too, so I appreciate having a guy like you on the show with us. And eventually, bring back on Jimmy. Bring back on Billy. We'd love to have them both on. And uh, Yeah, you know what? Billy, Billy would be a great one, and, and I think, you know, someone who's great uh, that you would like to talk to is, is a combo of uh, Billy and uh, David Drutz, who is the new CEO of uh, Lakeside, and, and taking you through, uh, you know, their growing techniques in the, in the deep water deep water culture that they're, uh, you know, the technique that they're using, which is being used in a few states, but so rare. And, it, you know, it's a way of, you know, it, it, they're, uh, they use about 15% less water. And it, it's a really interesting technique. I mean, it's obviously soilless, you know, it's, it's in a hydroponic style, but, you know, it's not like flood tables. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's really an interesting, it's an interesting model. And it's created some, like, there's really only one that they've created in Canada. And before Billy came on with us, he built this, like, state-of-the-art facility in Montreal. And it was called Peloton. Make it happen. We've got 45 seconds. I'll make it happen. Yeah, yeah. No, I'll make it happen. We'll we'll, we'll get my time. But thanks for having me. And you know what? The questions are always great. And your guests are always great. Maybe except for me. I I was maybe the low point of the show. But, you know, Ah. going after Leslie, you know, I feel like a rock star, you know. so You're great. then, Then... all right, David Posner, Chairman of Nutritional High. Appreciate having you on. Want to thank Leslie Botshore of Electrum Partners and also Bill Monroe, Manager of Nevada Operations of Maple Leaf Green World. We'll be back next month with another Potstock Radio. Nick Butts, KD. We will be back and just end with. Fat, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. (gasps) No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.